0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free.
1: We're going to take a fresh look at the Second Vatican Council. We'll do so in terms of why it was called, what took place, and what the consequences were that followed. By taking this approach, we hope to gain a better understanding of what the Council was and what it can mean to us today. Before I go into this detailed inquiry, I want to give you a a bare outline of the makeup of the Second Vatican Council. It was the 21st Worldwide or General Ecumenical Council in the Church called by Pope John Twenty-Third on January 25, 1959, just 90 days after he had been elected Pope on October 28, 1958. Three years and eight months later, after extensive preparation, Pope John was able to open the first session on September 29, 1962. At this session, there were 2,540 bishops, 300 major superiors from religious societies, three dozen representatives from various Orthodox and Protestant churches, representatives from 86 governments and international bodies. By the fourth and final session, the representatives from Protestant churches had grown to nearly 100. And uh, it's important to know that 900 of the bishops were from third world countries, from developing nations. This is the first time that any council was held where that kind of an influence was part of the whole setup because most of the time were European and American uh, bishops who were, like in 1868, the first Vatican Council. The opening session began by throwing out all of the proposed agendas. There were 987 schematas, you know, outlines. And uh, they were all thrown out. And new proposals were drawn up. And the first session concluded on December 8, 1962. The second session convened, and this was the habit of convening each autumn, it uh, was convened in, on September 29th and ran until December 4th, 1963. Meanwhile, incidentally, Pope John twenty-third <coughs> had died, and Paul VI took over. The fourth and final session opened the following September on the 14th and ended 85 days later with the council's solemn closing, on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, December 8th, 1965. Altogether, the meetings covered 280 days. The Council produced four constitutions. The first, a dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, a dogmatic constitution on the church, a pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, and a constitution on the sacred liturgy. The Council also produced nine decrees and three declarations. The decrees dealt with media, ecumenism, the Eastern churches, the office of bishop, priestly formation, the ministry and life of priests, the apostolate of the laity, and the church's missionary activity. The declarations were on religious freedom, Christian education, and the relationship of the church to non-Christian religions. Now here are two publications that contain whoops that contain all the documents of Vatican II. One is smaller print. The text, this is all, it's all Vatican II right there. The text runs to well over 100,000 words, and there are not many people who have read them all. Anyone under the age of 50 will not have a recollection of the Council as it was being held, or first-hand knowledge of the global conditions under which it took place. One final editorial comment. Vatican II qualifies as the most misunderstood and misrepresented event in the entire 20th century. Pope John Paul II called it the Holy Spirit's greatest gift to the Church at the end of the second millennium. On the other hand, any number of conscientious Catholics regarded it as a misguided adventure that undermined the foundations of the Church and created confusion among the faithful. We'll see if we can figure out why this is so, which brings us to our key question for this evening, Why? Why? If there was any root cause for the misconceptions and conflicts that arose during and after the Second Vatican Council, it had to do with that very small but thoroughly momentous three-letter word, why. We're not likely to understand the what if we don't understand the why. When we were little children, that's what mattered the most. We were always asking why, so much so that we drove people mad. They, they, that's what mattered to us. In a very true sense, the why in life constitutes our spirituality. It has to do with our identity and our purpose, our motivation and our goals. It's the measure we use to determine the relevance of things. And it determines our perspective, our outlook on life. You remember the old put-down when a person brought up something that was completely irrelevant to the issue under discussion? He'd say, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Today, that question might be a little more relevant. But relevance is another idea that we have to uh, take a look at. To get a better better idea of what I'm talking about here, just take an ordinary blade of grass, okay? blade of grass. Now, if I'm an architect and I look at that blade of grass, I'll probably note that it has a V-shaped design that enables the blade, though fragile, to support quite a bit of weight. If I were an agronomist, I would probably want to examine its root system to see whether it had characteristics that prevented erosion. And if I were a botanist, first thing I'd want to determine is what species the grass might be. If I were a plant life biologist, what would I think about? I'd think about chlorophyll and the process of photosynthesis. If I were a poet, I would marvel at the sight of life emerging from the earth. Now, most of us, what do we do? (laughs) We look at grass, and the only thing we know is that it's green. (laughs) Or if, if we have to mow it, well, you know, then it... This has some relevance. Now, you notice that the blade of grass is the one and the same thing. But each person sees it from a particular point of view. We call that perspective. The operative word here, however, is relevance. Because most of us don't rely on a detailed knowledge of grass in order to get by in our daily lives, we don't give it much attention, except, as I said, when it needs mowing. But suppose you're a groundkeeper on a, on a golf course. Grass would have such importance for you that you would look at it from every conceivable angle, every conceivable point of view. Its resistance to disease, its water consumption, its growth rate, tolerance for temper- temperature swings, you know, is it is it okay in the cold? If for example the grass thrives without large quantities of water for irrigation and at the same time doesn't require frequent mowing, the savings in maintenance would be significant. So if you're running a golf course, you grass is big news. Well now, what perspective are we supposed to have on the Second Vatican Council? Well, that will depend uh, very much on how we see its purpose, the why, and how it relates to our own sense of identity, to what lends meaning, happiness, purpose, fulfillment to our lives. Now, here's a short story from today's paper under the headline. This is the um, Canton Repository. It's under the headline of gutting of UN resolution on rape is disgraceful. Here I quote, the United Nations is no more likely to seriously address the conduct of its member nations than it is to force Sudan's leader, General Omar al-Bashir, to disband his Janjaweed militia, serious contenders for the world championship of mass raping. Said a villager in Dufour, in Dufour recently on PBS's front line, I was carrying my little baby on my back, and they shot him dead. After the child died, they pulled him away and raped me. I don't think this kept UN member al-Bashir awake that night. We might ask ourselves the same question. And we might even ask whether Vatican II would have any relevance to this kind of horror. So there's some, I just want to write down a couple of words here that you have to keep in mind as we talk. Identity, purpose, significance, and relevance. Those are are words that we're going to deal with as we talk about the why of Vatican II. It's it's, uh, very, very difficult to exaggerate the importance of purpose. Purpose is big. Dr. Bernie Siegel, you know, the oncologist, he writes about various people who had spontaneous remission of, uh, they experienced spontaneous remission from cancer. And he said the one thing that they had in common was a strong sense of purpose, a reason to live that went beyond self-interest. It was not just to stay alive, but they had a reason, and it transcended themselves. Stephen Covey, who wrote the book On the Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, he maintains that Family solidarity can be achieved and maintained only when the members of the family share a common sense of purpose. Viktor Frankl, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's the guy that developed logotherapy from his experience in a Nazi prison camp. And he noticed that uh, these people, no matter how much they were tortured or debased or abused or starved, the ones who had a sense of purpose still had the will to live. And they survived and that's a way he developed afterwards it's a very rather beneficial form of counseling called logotherapy when jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand he was talking about a common sense of purpose now not quite on a par with these examples i can quote alice in wonderland she came to this uh, fork in the road and she asked the cheshire cat which one she should take Then the cat says, well, it depends on where you want to go. Alice says she doesn't know where she wants to go. And the cat says, well, then I suppose it doesn't matter which road you take.
0: We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. Right now, across the globe, there are millions of refugees, people living outside their home country because of political turmoil, natural disaster, or other circumstances. Many of them have spent decades in refugee camps, making homes out of bamboo huts and tents. The people, poor but rich in their generous loving hearts, welcomed me inside their humble homes. Even though they had next to nothing, these refugees didn't hesitate to make me feel at home. In our own lives, may we welcome the stranger and comfort the oppressed. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family in mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents.
1: Here again. It's not only about the where, it's about the why. Why did you want to go this way or that? Now if we are to understand the why of the council, we have to know its origins. What prompted John Twenty-Third to call for a worldwide council? What was the need and how did he propose to meet it? What did he hope to achieve? In looking to answers to these questions, we have to really start with the council that preceded Vatican II, the first Vatican Council. It was called by Pope Pius IX, held in the years 1869 to 1870. That was the 20th general council in the history of the Church. And that council, mind you, was cut short, well short, of completing its agenda when the Italian army marched into the city of Rome, to complete the unification of Italy, and to put an end to the Papal States. Now, in order to understand how that happened, we have to go back a little farther in history, in European history. Not real, you know, not that, just a brief sketch. To begin with, we know that the Catholic Church had a lot to do with the development of Europe and Western civilization. During the barbarian invasions, it was the only institution that could preserve culture, education, you know, reading and writing, and maintain civil order. In the process of doing so, the church ran almost everything that had to do with uh, life, religion, law, economics, politics, education, even art. You know, the church was the the sponsor, or the, the, the patron of all the arts. There were few complaints, as long as the burdens were light, and there were no alternatives at hand. But the Renaissance came along, and it introduced an entirely new world, one not based on faith but on a passionate self-confidence in man. It was saturated with a Greco-human spirit, had no need for the church, nor was it bound by feudal regulations or social institutions of that time. Rising nationalism, the age of exploration, trade, and colonization raised the stakes and financial interests and gave impetus to the push for independence. These conditions worked to the advantage of political and religious formers and at the same time accelerated the development of science and technology. This peculiar three-cornered alliance between political and religious reformers and the pursuit of science brought an end to the dominance of the church in Europe and ushered in the Age of Reason, otherwise known as the Age of Enlightenment. Now this is where the dramatic changes took place. The upheaval brought about by the age of reason, the reign of terror, and all those things, resulted in the rejection of classical philosophies, the collapse of traditional social structures and norms, unprecedented political turmoil, and revolt against every form of authority. We find that the Catholic Church had a lot to do with the development of Europe. But when the Renaissance came along, that's when the dramatic changes took place. This upheaval resulted in the rejection of classical philosophies, the traditional social structures and norms, and all other manner of the end to establish authority. In short, this new movement worshipped at the altar of human progress and promised to bring Western civilization to a new state of perfection with unqualified happiness and human fulfillment. Ooh-hoo. All of this was to happen under the aegis of science and reason, not religion. In fact, religion was seen as a liability, as unscientific and irrational. The onset of the Industrial Revolution added even further problems. The dislocation of entire populations, the breakdown of family, the prevalence of child labor, hunger, illiteracy, and epidemic disease. Along with all this, there were nevertheless many remarkable discoveries in the natural sciences, An emergence of new categories of thought, really, and a radical change in economic reality that shifted wealth from people who owned land to those who were into production or industry. This brings us back to uh, Pope Pius IX and the Vatican Council. Pius IX's pontificate ran from 1846 to 1878, 32 years, the longest in the history of the papacy. Two years after he was elected, he fled from Rome. He was returned uh, by reason of, the, of European diplomacy and with the backing of a French expeditionary force. As one author put it at the time, the papal regime was restored in an atmosphere of passionate resentment and it justified the charge that it was reactionary and maladroit. Pius IX was initially regarded as a liberal, but he soon became firmly convinced that there was an intimate connection between the French Revolution and the destruction of traditional values in the social, moral, and religious order. Pius IX was responsible for a centralization of powers in the church, a move that was perceived as retrograde, as going against the popular trend towards participatory governance in society at large. Now the crowning achievement of his, or his, the capstone to his opposition against moral degeneration, was his declaration of papal infallibility. And this is a very interesting thing because it angered Disraeli and Bismarck. They could not see how the Pope could claim authority over faith and morals when they wanted to do that themselves. And they were the heads of real totalitarian regimes. The uh, This move, uh, the, the cynics described this as the shout of a sinking man. Pius IX, uh, depending on your point of view, of course, the hallmark of his reign, or if you, if you like, his most tor- notorious act, was the publication of the Syllabus of Errors. <laughs> the Syllabus of Errors was a thorough condemnation of everything that was called, what he called modernism. And among the charges brought against Pius IX, none was seen as more uh, reprehensible than the condemnation in the syllabus of this proposition. The syllabus condemned this proposition quote, that the Roman pontiff can and ought to reconcile himself and come to terms with progress, liberalism, and modern civilization. Now, according to the historian Owen Chadwick, this sentence was actually written by Cardinal Billio, and the Pope never even bothered to check the final draft. So you can't lay that at the door of Pius, or Benedict the, the ninth, Pius the ninth, pardon me. Anyhow, whatever one's views happen to be, this much is for certain. Pius IX epitomized the adversarial relationships that had existed for centuries between the church, science, and the Reformation churches. He was the last pope to head the temporal empire of the church, the papal states. When he died, the French editorial writers gleefully predicted that the cardinals would not bother to come together to elect another pope. They reckoned that, quote, the outdated church was finally dead, and the world could now turn its full attention to getting on with progress. Contrary to the expectations of the French intelligentsia, the cardinals did come together to elect the pope. And they settled on a 68-year-old man who had already celebrated his 40th anniversary of ordination to the priesthood. He was thought to be a short-term transitional pontiff. Instead, he held the office of pope for 25 years, 1878, through the turn of the century into the year 1903, he proved to be the first in the long line of exceptional, energetic, and effective popes that led the church into the modern era. He took the name Leo XIII. His signature letter or encyclical, Rerum Novarum, which means of new things, was on social justice. In all, he was to write more than 80 encyclicals, and more than 50 of them were on the general topic of social justice including one against slavery, which was still being practiced in his day. His preoccupation with human rights helped transform the church from the status of an insecure temporal power in Europe to a moral and spiritual leader in the whole world. To give you a better idea of what this transition entailed, here's a brief summary of some of the things that took place in the lifetime of Leo Thirteenth. He was born in 1810 one year after Napoleon had kidnapped Pope Pius VII. Yeah, they kidnapped Popes, you know. In fact, Pius VI was killed. Half of the Prussian hierarchy was jailed by Bismarck for refusing to accept state control over the church. The Jubilee year of 1850 was canceled because of rioting and revolution, and the Jubilee of 1875 was downsized after Pius IX had declared himself a prisoner of the Vatican. The new Italian government confiscated the monasteries and religious properties and made the clergy subject to military conscription. You see, the church was in good esteem. Now, at Leo's election in 1878, civil authorities would not provide security. So he was unable to give the traditional address and blessing from the balcony of St. Peter, what was known as Urbi at Orbi, to the, the city and the world. And Leo XIII contemplated fleeing from Rome when the funeral procession of Pius IX was attacked by a mob, fully intent on throwing his corpse into the Tiber River. Nice thing, huh? During the 22nd year of his pontificate, reminiscing as he joyfully welcomed a group of pilgrims to Rome for the holy year 1900, Pope Leo was moved to admit that his term had, as Pope had been, quote, difficult and full of anxiety. As Pope, he never set foot out of the Vatican. Now, Pope Leo XIII, mind you, wasn't what they call a stuffed shirt, you know, an ecclesiastic, you know, and someone who wore French cuffs and all that sort of thing. And his, his uh, sense of humor was well above average. When told uh, that rumor had it that a certain nun had become pregnant, he showed no signs of, of shock. And when his informant questioned him about this, he said, well, he said, when one of the Franciscan friars becomes pregnant, then I will be shocked. He used a tobacco product called snuff. You know about snuff, you know. They put a pinch of snuff under their upper lip. And uh, Monsignor once criticized him sharply about this and told him he should get rid of the vice. And the Pope calmly replied, Monsignor, if it were a vice, you would have acquired it long ago. <laughs> now, the Pope's what you call frank familiarity with human nature, found its way into his writings which nonetheless touched on such lofty topics as the study and reading of Scripture, devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the reunion of the Oriental and Slavic churches. All these topics have come up again in Vatican II. Along with Rerum Novarum, which was his most notable encyclical on social justice, mention should also be made of what, quote, apostology which is what he says is that this rejects the ideology of socialism and it's a concern about which he felt compelled to speak by reason of his apostolic office, as vicar of Christ. Now, amazingly, the church is very communitarian, but it was always adamantly opposed to social, and still is, to socialism. And uh, the, uh, even though the, church, the social teaching embraces elements like, you know, the right of workers to form union, the need for government and social agencies to show a preferential option for the poor, belief in socialism as the ultimate solution to all human hills, all human problems, has found not a single word of acceptance in any of the more than 100 documents on social concerns that have been issued by the successors of Leo XIII. What's the reason for this, the firm stand against socialism? is that it offends against human dignity, reducing the populace, that is, the people individually and collectively, to a condition of subservience, into abject dependence on the state. Moreover, this institutionalized dependence, as proposed by the proponents of socialism, creates a totalitarian state. If you reflect on that, you, know, you see there's a big difference between getting help from, let's say, uh, the Salvation Army or Catholic Charities or uh, one of these other groups than to set up institutionalized dependence on the government. Then you don't have free citizens. You have people who are dependents. And that's what happens. And then the state acquires totalitarian control. I think as a trendsetter, because the successive popes will talk about this again, Leo's encyclical, Providentissimus Deus, on the necessity for Catholics to read the Bible, ranks right up with his works on social justice. Quoting Pope Leo the Great, whom he greatly admired, Leo XIII reminded Catholics that, quote, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ.
0: We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.